Yeah, they had us the first half, I'm not gonna lie. They had us, we weren't defeated, but they had us. But it took guts, it took an attitude, that's all it takes. That's all it takes to be successful is an attitude. And that's what our coach told us, he said, it's the me. They got something to say about what the move was. Hello, you're listening to the Off Court Podcast, a podcast about the niche history, politics, um, esoteric stories, and uh, weird coincidences of sport. Uh, we don't actually talk about a couple of those topics ever. So I mean, like, I don't know what that was, but you tried to switch it up and we appreciated during the middle of our second season. Yeah. Uh, but we are, what's your name by the way? I'm I'm Abdul. We're off to a great start. Um, I'm Abdul. Uh, Yeah. And I'm Aton and I have a beard that looks like the character that we will be discussing today. Not to tease it. I'm not sure, like, you don't have enough uh, body mass to look like a mensch yet, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but, like, you're getting there. <laughs> I just gotta fill in helps. a bit more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you look like you've you've done peyote uh, in the wilderness <laughs> yeah. for, like, six days. Also, if, yeah, if I took off my uh, sweater, I'd have this Raptors t-shirt on with all my hell tats yeah, out, king. so I just look like a, like a Toronto fucking hipster. I look like somebody who just got into the Raptors this year, just with the way the rest of my body looks like, you know? Or someone who has Raptors merch but never watches a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just (laughs) I just say I just regurgitate what my friends tell me about the games they actually watch. Yeah. Yeah, that that Debo guy is really good this season, huh? So we (laughs) are talking about Fidel Castro today. We are doing two episodes on Cuba this season. One about about Cuba as a you know, compelling alternative to capitalist sport and the way they've built their system of sporting. But the other episode, this episode is about Fidel Castro specifically, the man, the myth, the legend, and his relationship to sports, specifically baseball. This episode will be a bit jumpy. I used Peter C. Bjarkman, who is a a freak who's obsessed with uh, Cuban sports, um, as my primary reference and his writing, uh, particularly for this episode. But it Bjarkman writes in nonlinear time. He will introduce a topic on page 80 and bring it back on page 400 and talk about 90 things in between. So I had 70 pages of notes that I uh, actually am having a very hard time organizing. <laughs> and that's why we are not recording this and the other Cuba episode back to back. They're not really related at all, though. Like one is about Fidel. The other one is about uh, could we build an alternative to capitalist sports? The answer is ye- mostly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um a little spoiler for you there. So, yeah, I'll I'll just fucking kick right into it. We will go into yeah, high man. gear right away. Um so like Fidel, it's worth mentioning Fidel did not come to Cuba and do a revolution with the intention of making it a communist country. <laughs> uh like the revolution was not actually communist in nature. It was sort of retroactive and retroactively applied and so was that legend mostly by right-wing media uh, in the U.S., and like Fidel himself, right, as a reaction to, like, U.S. hostility post-revolution. But, like, uh, Fidel, when he took over Cuba, um, as Bjarkman says, was a man largely, if not entirely, without a fixed ideology, Um, Mm -hmm. something that ties very deeply into the way Castro treated sports. A lot of, like, general ideas, and I love this because it's very American exceptional, a lot of general myths pervading Cuban baseball are that the sport died after 1960. 
you know, after the revolution, after uh, Fidel sort of took over and, and you know, dismantled, quote unquote, dismantled uh, Cuban sport. And then there's also like legends about sport that follow Fidel a lot. Um, one, obviously the 638 assassination attempts, which is a pretty accurate one. <laughs> but the other one is that he was a hot big league prospect that he wanted to play in the major leagues and he tried out and he couldn't, um, you and know, that's one, why he became so evil. Yeah. It's like, you know, <laughs> fuck you Yankee, you know, like that sort of, that sort of like weird pervasive legend. And there's a bunch of other stuff. And like, I think that the legends that follow Cuba, uh, Cuban baseball and specifically Fidel's sports stuff is very interesting. Um, mm. It's it's described here as a ruthless fabrication. <laughs> what I, I don't want to spoil maybe too much of what we'll get into, but from what I under I got looking up this legend online is some places try to almost like equate it to you know like this idea that like if Hitler had just gotten into that art school that he applied to, then maybe he wouldn't have gone on to be a dictator. Is that what's like without spoiling anything ahead? Is that what's going on with this story here in a you sense, know, like from an American side? I didn't have that in my notes, but you that's a great point because mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a whole section dedicated to like, why is this myth so pervasive and why is it like only Americans who talk about it? And mm-hmm. um, wow, no, that's uh, that's pretty we'll, much it. We'll, we'll bring that up again then because, yeah, that, that's been running in my mind a little bit. This kind of like equation of the dictators and just giving them all this like, you know, this idea that like there was something that escaped them and that's what made them so anti-American, not the fact that America is an imperial evil, you know? Yeah, if Mussolini had qualified for that Papa John's franchise, he wouldn't have, you know, taken over Italy. Like there's the, one of the big stories about Fidel is that he went mm. to like a big league tryout uh, at the time of that instant. He was actually honeymooning with his bride in New York. So like people for a long time, American journalists could literally just make shit up about Cuba however mm-hmm. they wanted. You know, a writer named Patrick Sims wrote of a visit to Latin American Stadium in Havana that is uh, described here as distorted at best and at worst bad fiction, where he's like, there's a near, there was a riot among drunken combative fans, an outbreak that required police intervention, and then he was assaulted by a menacing pack of rowdy teens uh, who he had to flee. Uh, the writer indicated, I have attended hundreds of games in that very park and also hiked from there to the city center in late evening hours on numerous occasions. And I've never witnessed such scenes of horrifying violence. Havana is unquestionably the safest city I've ever encountered. In 1964, in Sport Magazine, ex-big leaguer Don Hoke, aided by journalist Myron Cope, recounts a distant Havana day during the 1951 winter season when rebellious anti-Batista, uh, the former dictator of Cuba, students interrupted Cuban league play while a young law student named Fidel Castro seized the hill and delivered several unscheduled pitches to Hoke himself. This is wrong. Like, it's both apocryphal. It's just a lie. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. there's uh, many details that are provided that would be, like, rationally impossible um, to make sh- that this could have ever happened. And, of course, because it's a Peter C. Bjarkman book, as I've discovered from looking at his writing, he revisits it two pages later, but then describes it from the beginning again. Yeah, uh, despite the fact that Myron Cope was a really good journalist, he, uh, you know, he he thought of a good story and kicked that rather than actually committing to any sort of journalistic integrity here. Like, he was a very famous and very good sports journalist, but here he was just, uh, you know, let the legend 
uh, be played as truth. You know, next Tim Wendell uh, described Castro as having a reputed flaming fastball uh, that never earned him a spot on a big league roster. And basically, yeah, like there's all these fabricated stories about Fidel and like Fidel, uh, you know, he could have just been, you know, the greatest pitcher for the New York Yankees you ever saw. Right. Or some other major league team. I think it was the Reds that is are often Washington and the Reds, I think, are the two teams that are seen as like the ones who tried to recruit him the most. Neither of which, again, is actually true. Part, yeah, part of the account is that they actually offered him contracts, from what I understand. But from everything I've looked up online, there's no evidence of this. The teams have never even discussed this in any way. So it seems like people are slinging like hard truths about this, but there's just no actual paper trail. That's actually a huge part of the legend is that they they like seeked him out. Um, not mm-hmm. that he went to them, but they they went to him because he was such a legendary. A baseball player in Cuba, right? Like, that's such a huge part of the Fidel Castro legend. Like, Fidel did love sports. Um, he was, uh, you know, post-revolution, he understood the importance of sports and keeping Cuba, like, present in the world, present in the world stage. Um, and he kept uh, the Havana Sugar Kings, which were their minor league franchise afloat for a long time until they mm-hmm. left, which we'll cover in another Cuba episode. And he was actually a baseball player. He, uh, as a schoolboy pitcher, he threw hard but wildly, which is the exact opposite of uh, other of the uh, fictionalized accounts of his like playing. And he never made the University of Havana team, as many describe. Uh, and he definitely wasn't the team star performer. Um, he played baseball uh, as a high school senior for one year in 1945. So Fidel... Um, he could hoop. He had. He was six foot three. Uh, played point guard. Um, you've seen pictures of Fidel. Everyone knows muscular, but not like slow. You know what I mean? Like he was mm-hmm. quite. He's quite agile by all accounts. Uh, we don't know his wingspan. I'm sure we could calculate it if we wanted to, but um, I mean, he's six foot three, right? Like he could play. He was. He's an easy into a guard position. His his buddy Che Guevara, from what I see here, is five nine. So that means that um, uh, Castro was dunking on Che whenever they were che, playing together. Che hated sports. Che did not mm. give a fuck about sports, but probably because he was a manlet. <laughs> yeah, exactly because he was he was the first uh, twink uh, dictator. <laughs> yeah. So Fidel. Uh, yeah, he he played at the uh, basketball team at his high school in Bellin, or called Bellin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he attended from uh, his private high school, by the way, that he attended from 42 to 45. He pitched on the baseball squad as a senior. He was also a star track and field performer, uh, specifically middle distances and high jumping. He was Mm -hmm. a ping pong champion, and he was captain of the hiking club. Basketball was like Fidel's first love, um, but, I mean, Cuba was never really a basketball country. And Fidel was never quite as good as he thought he was. He was turned down by the coach and only selected for the squad after a full year of determined nighttime practice on his own, aided by lights he had persuaded the priests to install, specifically so that he could shoot after hours in the school courtyard. He was eventually named team captain the senior year. So we already see, like, in his history, like, Fidel is driven, right? Whatever he puts his mind to, he will get, be it the overthrow of the tyrannical Batista government 
or uh, being captain of the high school basketball team, right? He's like an anime. It's it's curious to me that some of these uh, American writers that you were referencing earlier didn't like focus on this aspect as some way to mythologize Castro as like like flipping a switch when like his dream was taken away from him because it, it sounds like he really cared about basketball in comparison for from everything I've read about in terms of his love of baseball which was more like a natural love because he was just good at it. While with basketball, it seems like he actually put a foot forward to excel in it and potentially make it a career, none of which is ever mentioned by these writers. It's not mentioned, in my opinion, because it's a very American work ethic, right? Like Fidel was not a communist at this point. He didn't become a communist till like well after the revolution. And some could make an argument that, that you know, Fidel, you know, sort of embraced communism wholeheartedly because like not really because he believed in the cause at first right right? so it's like out of spite yeah yeah, so something like this might actually make someone think wow fidel is cool (laughs) right like (laughs) or fidel is like an example of neoliberalism right yeah exactly and i mean most of these writers who hate him sort of avoid things that make him seem like he embodies like this like uniquely american like protestant work ethic you know, for very obvious reasons. No one wants to know that communists succeeded through hard work. <laughs> you know, uh, Fidel did have a notion of playing in the major leagues, uh, a momentary fantasy, described as a momentary fantasy arising from a supercharged ego, and also inspired by the number of Cubans rushed to the majors by Joe Cambria and the Washington Senators during the player shortages in World War II in the U.S. The other thing is Fidel was actually probably in the lowest rung of baseball players because uh, the white upper-class students were pretty low quality compared to Afro-Cubans who, you know, sort of came up on the lowest end of the ladder. He, yeah, Fidel was called his uh, high school's top school, no, not just his high school, Havana's top schoolboy sportsman. Oh, wow. During, uh, during his senior year. He was very determined to use basically anything he did to show that he could excel at anything imaginable and be the best at it. So it wasn't just athletics, it was also academics, in which he was an exemplary academic student, uh, head of the debate society, and very involved with student politics. He He was so driven, he once bet a school chum that he could ride his bicycle full speed into a brick wall without flinching. He succeeded and uh, was in the the school infirmary for several weeks. So Castro is Mamba is a Mamba mentality kind of dude, from what I understand. Like he was a frat boy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he was like a an overachieving frat boy. Because like in what other world would you be like, yo, bro, I bet I can ride my bike into this wall at full speed and not jump off. Um, I, and I and in that in that situation, I'm giving my bike or my money to that person. So yeah, it makes sense that uh, everybody followed Castro right after this moment. <laughs> uh, and Fidel did show up uninvited to two tryout camps hosted by um, Washington uh, in his junior and senior year. No contract was ever offered to him. You know he's looked for them they did not look for him and uh even if a uh, contract was offered it would have been rejected because he was a privileged youth from a wealthy family and had better prospects on the horizon and likely his family would not have let him uh he was described during those tryouts as hard but wild throwing yeah he he played on the freshman basketball team at the university of havana tried out unsuccessfully for the college varsity basketball squad 
And in interview with an American visitor, you know, at some point I did not write down the year. Love to expound on the important symbolic values of his favorite schoolboy sport. Uh, he said basketball provides valuable indirect training for revolutionary activities. It is a game requiring strategic and tactical planning, overall cunning plus speed and ability, abil- agility, <laughs> the true elements of guerrilla warfare. He also said in the same interview, baseball held no such promise for a future revolutionary. That that uh, makes sense, the way he articulates the difference in the sports and the way they relate to communism, like Baseball is a, is American, not only in the sense that it's fostered in America, but just this idea that everybody should fit into their role separately and contribute to like an overall system of winning is much different than basketball is egalitarian, you know, pass the ball, five people that are working together at the same time. Like it makes sense. Everything you just read to me, there's it, as also like cool and sort of tankyish quote. I'm, I'm doing quotes right now in the top of my uh, <laughs> screen that it sounds like, I mean, and, and like baseball is very like a high level sports. Like this guy matches up well with this guy. This guy is good at this place on this day. Like there is a strategy and finesse to baseball, but it is very different. Like you don't get in basketball, a play will break down. You have to recover, right? You don't get that in baseball. Baseball is like is a game of planning and matchups uh, in like a very specific kind of way. The leader, even into the revolution, would just organize pickup games at random during visits to Bulgaria and Poland. He would uh, he would just go out and play <laughs> basketball against students, amateur league squads. Uh, he would also play against the Cuban press back home in Havana in in Sofia, Bulgaria, with an army team of his. Uh, he played versus a civilian team. It was noted as the happiest Fidel had ever looked when he had uh, been traveling on the road. However, like basketball may have contained the seeds of proper guerrilla preparation, but baseball was pretty much the Cuban national identity. It was Cuba was and to this day is a baseball country, start to finish. It is spectacularly baseball um, heavy. Now, like there is a point in this where Fidel, where Fidel, um, like the future of Fidel's government post-revolution was actually in large part determined by a baseball game. Uh, The Barbudos exhibition appearance uh, was an exhibition game held between Fidel's uh, team of, 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 Basically, his revolutionary guys, you know what I mean? Like the people who he fought with during the revolution. And they were called the Barbudos because that stood for the Bearded Ones, or it means the Bearded Ones, which is a great name for a baseball team, by the way. Um, And the visiting Rochester Red Wings, which were supposed to play the Havana Sugar Kings for a couple of games, but they they played against Fidel first uh, as like an exhibition game to like legitimize uh, the new Cuban country. And like there's a lot in baseball I found out. There's an entire field of academic study that's just dedicated to baseball's role in the Cold War. A part of me never wants to read about baseball again, but another part of me is like we could probably do a whole other thing on it uh, that doesn't mm-hmm. involve Cuba because fuck, man, there's a lot. Uh, like the way they colonized Taiwan, Japan with baseball, a bunch of stuff. Uh, I was just going to quickly say that um, if people um, are just learning about this subject right now, um, if you remember too, um, uh, Abdul, around the time that Obama opened, uh, the, like removed the trade embargo with uh, Cuba, him and Castro like symbolically attended another exhibition game in Havana together to sort of 
echo back to that moment from what I understand, which I thought I think is pretty interesting. It is. And we'll talk about that in the other episode as well, because that was Mm -hmm. uh, a very interesting turning point for Cuban baseball. Um, And uh, the Cubans lost that agreed that that symbolic moment uh, pretty badly, actually. As for the Barbudos game, it's described here, a 10-day span between July 17th and 26th would define Castro's initial leadership crisis and offer a major turning point in the earliest months of the new revolutionary government. It would also bring a quick end to Fidel's initial indecision and doubts about the direction of the new government and his own future role in the fate of the nation. The first six months of the new administration had been largely defined by confusion, missteps in planning, and a general naivete amongst young revolutionaries who somehow suddenly found themselves in control of a country without preparation or forethought about how they would actually govern. Fidel was not the Cuban president at this point. Um, The Constitution of 1940 did not let him. However, he was so popular that that probably wouldn't have mattered to the Cuban people. Manuel Arusha was... uh, was the president at this point and fidel was uh like che Guevara, was more interested in carrying on the revolutionary process in other latin american nations than with like the actual mechanical process of running a country and like this was also a huge time of political unrest right he did the the agrarian reform act was passed the mechanism used to implement it called inra caused a lot of opposition and consternation about a month earlier uh, bombs were set off in Havana by opposition terrorists, you know, people who loved Batista. And um, <clears throat> during a speech where Fidel was defending the new agrarian policies, and then, you know, at the same time, there's also the defection uh, to the U.S. of Cuban Air Force Commander Pedro Lanz. And Arusha was also becoming a, a huge problem for Fidel, namely because the uh, <clears throat> Arusha had a campaign against the cuban communist party again cube like there was no revolutionary communism at this point in cuba and fidel was promoting like an fdr style approach to new government like sort of like a new deal sort of democracy but also saw that the that the communists were extremely popular and probably the only people offering a political solution for an all-inclusive power base and offering material support to the country from what i understand no yeah, absolutely. Like, basically, like, there was very little room for opposition in something so mm-hmm. nascent, right? Like, right. the revolution could have collapsed. Uh, Arusha was out of touch. The people wanted changes. The Agrarian Reform Act was a step in the right direction. But it's a, uh, it was a mess, right? Cuba was an absolute mess at this point. What wasn't a mess was the Havana Sugar Kings, the minor league franchise uh, that people loved in cuba and there was like a public holiday announced in the first um post batista celebration uh happening which is now the country's main patriotic holiday it would feature an address to the masses by fidel where he would communicate his uh, personal political future directly to the people that long live fidel castro Two hundred thousand demonstrators acclaimed the revolutionary leader outside the capital he was back again as premier Nine days before, he resigned over a disagreement with President Urrutia, but now he was on top and the president was out. That's Cuban politics. Then Castro pleased the mob in another role, baseball player. The game was for charity and the gate was a sellout. Castro's a man to reckon with in any field. Now a go with a bat. Anybody riding high in Cuban politics just has to keep his eye on the ball. 
thousands of people came to the uh, to the, the Havana for the festivities, and uh, all these people would also go to the Sugar uh, Sugar King slash Rochester Red Wings game that would be preceded by the Barbudos game. Fidel basically solidified is you know the basically guaranteed the love of the Cuban people at this game where he he showed up and man could that guy pitch. The Barbudos showed up at the game, uh, and it's good to note that in in the sort of revolutionary culture of Cuba's revolutionaries, the length of your beard was considered a point of pride, as it was used to determine the length of time you had served in their movement. Or the length of, oh, okay, that's what you were going to say. Okay, never mind. Oh, I was going to assume it was something else. Yeah, and... Uh, Whiplash. You know, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> they sang the national anthem. You know, when one of their guys had a home run, the Barbudos jumped on the field and embraced him. It was like a really big time of celebration. And Cuba, Cuba knew, Fidel Castro knew how much baseball meant to Cuba, right? His first, his, one of his first acts as president was to underwrite the debt of the Sugar Kings franchise. And with the Sugar Kings perched as uh, at the top of the International League standings and they would make their way to an eventual title, eventual title too. Fidel made it clear he wanted baseball to continue. He said, even if I have to pitch, was the famous saying. Yeah, the Barbudos would play exhibition games all over the country and donate the proceeds to Sugar Kings. And in this exhibition game, Fidel pitched one scoreless inning in front of 26,000 people, which is huge. It was said that Castro sported an impressive loopy curveball. Yeah, he pitched one inning and struck out two. When the umpire called the batter out on a high inside pitch, Castro dashed to the plate and shook hands with the ump. Uh, the headline in the Rochester newspaper was Castro scores smash hit as baseball player, followed by the subheading Fidel whiffs two in mound stint as 25,000 fanaticos applaud. Yeah, uh, it was it was massive. People like the amount of people in and around the stadium. The the numbers jump from anywhere from minimum twenty five thousand to maximum forty thousand. But basically, the revolutionary fervor <laughs> that this left Havana with really fucked up the actual series that was meant to be played between uh, oh. the Sugar Kings and the Red Wings. Where like you know people lost their minds. There was like massive riotous celebrations. People were shooting guns <laughs> to celebrate. Um, which ended up uh, harming the Cuban shortstop and Rochester's third base coach. Like they they got inadvertent fire on them during the celebration. Yeah, kind they of inadvertently thing? got shot. Uh, they oh both survived. By, um... by the that this already shows you how fucking rioting in Cuba is also cooler than in fucking North America because we can't even shoot fucking guns in the air when the Vancouver Canucks lose or when the Cleveland Cavaliers win their first championship, you know? Instead of that, we're fucking uh, Cleveland fans ate horse poo off the street. They were so excited. I mean, I try to understand everything. You know how open-minded I am. So they win. They're celebrating. And obviously there there are police horses that the Philadelphia Police Department uses. And uh, they've been punched out after previous wins. But this time, the complete opposite of punching out. A guy dusted the, the, the horse poop off with a, with a scarf <laughs> and then proceeded to eat it. Andrew, is this a Philadelphia <laughs> tradition? What, what, how, how does one celebrate by doing that? It's not a Philadelphia tradition. It's not a Philadelphia tradition. It's in Philadelphia. Yeah, it was yeah. Like the one, yeah. And no revolution followed those events. <laughs> Yeah, LeBron James did not declare himself supreme leader <laughs> following exactly. the events of uh, following uh, Cleveland's victory. 
so they they end up canceling the rest of the games. <laughs> and uh, this would be the last time an event like this was held in Cuba. And a few years later, the Sugar Kings were moved secretly overnight to New Jersey. But this obviously had a huge impact, right? Fidel uh, in this game sort of saw his own importance to the Cuban people and his own importance in this burgeoning uh, government there. And, you know, it's it's speculated that this was the game or the moment where he understood how how he needed to stick around in Cuba. You know, we can debate the many reasons. There were probably more than one. Uh, I believe it. I, I really do. It makes sense. Like, surely from a propaganda standpoint, like, this was, this was considered, you know, sort of the, the greatest display of raw nationalism following a very chaotic revolution, a very uncertain period of time after that. Okay. It also led the speech. It, it, in the Cuban papers, Fidel throwing a scoreless inning went above his speech where he laid out the future for Cuba. <laughs> Um, so that should tell you how important it is. Yeah, the headline was Memorable Volanda and La Historia del Baseball Cubano. I have no idea what that means. Um, I can sort of guess. But it was it was bigger than the actual politics happening at the time. It's uh, also curious to me how uh, since Castro, people like Putin or uh, Kim Jong-un and stuff seem to have been inspired by the uh, vitriol, the sort of energy of this story, and come up with their own. But their stories, which people are aware of, like supposedly Kim Jong-un says he can dunk. It's very unbelievable. And Putin like can wrestle like uh, bears and stuff. But, you know, th- this is something material that not only, you know, do we have like newspaper records of, but a good amount of Havana ended up witnessing this and sort of actually being inspired to do this. And, and it, it really, from what I understand from what you're telling me, launched Castro into like a new stratosphere in Cuban uh, 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 public zeitgeist. And it makes me curious if some, you know, quote unquote communist or whatever, author- quote unquote authoritarian leaders later, you know, saw that that like, is something of value and something that they should fabricate, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, like, for me, the big thing is, like, Fidel was the real deal in, like, a million different yes. ways, right? Like, you know, a, almost all of the negative propaganda around Fidel is largely manufactured by people who had their sugar plantations taken away by uh, the Castro government, right? By the revolutionary government. But, like, Fidel you know, sort of saw a country in chaos ruled by one of the most brutal dictators, you know, the global South has ever seen and did something about it. And like revolution is an imperfect and elastic science. There's going to be difficulty along the way, but ultimately like, you know, Fidel had a very successful revolution and for a long time had a very successful country up until the, uh, what do you call it? The special period in the time of peace, which was the mass famine that happened in the nineties. Yeah. I love how Maoist that, that description is by the way, the special period in the time of peace <laughs> to describe, uh, you know, a U.S. instigated famine following the collapse of the Soviet bloc, you know, very good at propaganda. I do, I do appreciate like Fidel's use of language is great, but he, he understood where he was from. Right. Like he understood it very well. Uh, With that, we can take a break and then get into some of the more batshit stuff about it.
So Bjarkman continues, again, it is to be emphasized that communism in Cuba's mid-century revolution was a result, not a cause, even if it is not always clear how and why the resulting transformation played out, especially those from the Cuban exile community of South Florida, blinded by a hatred stemming from privileges and material possessions lost and longings for homeland they see as being unjustly taken from them by an act of deception. I don't know much about Peter C. Bjarkman other than he's a lunatic writer who can't focus on a single topic for more than two pages, but he has written no less than six books on Cuban baseball, the definitive history of the Boston Celtics, and the definitive history of college basketball, as well as a bunch of other books about sports. Yeah, uh, like there's stuff there I a bunch I need to actually look at for other episodes of that mm-hmm. we might do in the future. But like this guy is a sports fanatic. He's an extraordinary writer. He is also dead. I just found out. I'm sorry for bad mouthing you, oh, wow. Peter Bjarkman. But, uh, but yeah, he, uh, he has written a lot. Yeah. I mean, he has like a dozen books and many other uh, essays and yeah, he's, he's a guy who wrote, um, rest in power king i i wish you had written in a more convenient way to to future to proof your books for podcasts but uh yeah <laughs> one of the most favored arguments to those wishing to st- also he's a king by the way he's very there's a lot of stuff written about fidel castro in baseball most of it overwhelmingly negative both academic and uh in editorial pages and in books uh peter bjarkman's writing is, I would say, pretty even-handed. He describes uh, the failures and successes of Castro's baseball program uh, very uh, in very good measure. One of the most favorite, favorite arguments to those wishing to establish Fidel's deceitful hiding of early communist sympathies is his own celebrated midnight television address on December 1st, 1961, which he declared, I'm a Marxist-Leninist, and I shall be a Marxist-Leninist until the last day of my life. The 1961 speech... When someone looks at it, uh, they point out the immediate and unfortunate misconceptions in both Miami and Washington, which badly muddled the water. The speech was a concoction, a composition, a political construction engineered to fit the particular moment. A stateside Cuban exile monitoring the Havana broadcast from Miami UPI sent out an inaccurate version of certain passages that seemed to affirm what Castro opponents most wanted to hear. When the Havana newspaper Revolucion published the full text several days later, it was too late to correct the initial impression caused and distorted by the selective report. Um, basically kicking off uh, an extended, more aggressive amount of red red scare propaganda against Cuba that prior existed. So already we're just seeing people make shit up about Fidel. Mm-hmm. And this is also pervasive, obviously, in baseball and the Latin American sort of relationship to you know, baseball is not uh, is not a purely American capitalist concoction. This sort of gets into the why Castro's legend follows him around so deeply. It's also the most jumpy because Bjarkman is jumpy. You know, one is there's the obvious commercial benefit. It's uh, there's very little support for this legend in Cuba. Uh, like people sort of laugh at it. They love taking American tourists for a ride, or I guess you couldn't travel to Cuba if you were American. They love taking white tourists for a ride. You know, with producers of replica Caribbean League hats recounting the glories of Fidel the pitcher and its catalogs. You know, a fake baseball signed by Fidel and, like, people (laughs) pushing Fidel merchandise, like his, you know, baseball jersey from when he played pro or some other made-up bullshit, which is awesome, by the way. I would love that, but it's funny that you even mentioned the fact that America, like, most Americans 
would never buy that jersey because it disgusts them on a uh, nationalistic level. At home, Fidel did stress his baseball connections, but he did it pretty honestly. He said he loved baseball and he was a regular fixture at games and stuff like that. When he was interviewed by, by Barbara Walters in 1977, he would make light of any serious baseball connections. And he would remark to visiting North American journalists as most bothersome moments came with the constant requests that he signed baseballs. Whereas, like, Cubans have never actually celebrated Castro's prowess at the sport. They knew he was a rabid fan, but there's no stories to be found in Cuban press about serious baseball skills, about any of that stuff. Uh, most biographers in Cuba never even mention the topic of baseball uh, or try to attribute Fidel's impact in Cuba to the game very much and actually actively try to downplay his uh, baseball, his, like, sporting history Probably to downplay his privileged upbringing, by the way. I was going to say, if it's not that, then it's probably to downplay the fact that, you know, Castro, from what I'm understanding, it's not like he wasn't like, um, you know, he didn't he didn't enact sports as like a propaganda, quote unquote, propaganda tool the same way that places like, you know, uh, Soviet Union or China did, where it's sort of promoting like elite sportsmanship and sort of like putting athletes up on on pedestals. He promoted like mass sports and using sports to um, organize a population and to involve a population, which is like what America promises it does with sports, but in reality, it enacts it more similarly to places like the Soviet Union and China, where it's like about elite sportsmanship and putting our sports people up as like these like superheroes for fascism. Yeah, if you want to take that up, hundred hundred percent. Like, and it's like the Cuban sports program is essentially to keep public health up. Like anything yeah. else is a bonus, and that's the angle they take it with, uh, and also to promote themselves on the national stage as being like an effective country. Right? Those are the two goals of the Cuban sports program, and that's basically what sports is. Once you eliminate profit motive from it, which doesn't mean you can't have competitive leagues. As we yeah. find out later. Yeah, like it he in a big way does fulfill the promise of what sports is and and isolates the necessity of sports to create revolutionary ideas and revolution ready populations. Other accounts uh describe Fidel as like a big kid who threw a wicked fucking curveball, exact quote, or they sent a letter to New York Giants management rejecting a five thousand dollar signing bonus in exchange for never mentioning politics or indicating anything revolutionary to them, which are uh, like, obviously that's bullshit. It, during the revolution, he was offered a, a point on the giants roster. <laughs> as long as he didn't talk about politics, that's insane. That's fantasy. It, that, and that is clearly also to illustrate his like inability to debate and negotiate, sort of have a negotiation with the West. Right. That's, that's literally all that fucking reads to me. By the way, ninety-five percent of Cubans have uh, at the, like uh, have been involved in some kind of sport in their upgrading upbringing, and I bet those numbers do not match America. But not anyways, yeah, I was just gonna. It sounds like just fucking projection from the writers once again. Yeah, when people bring up the fact that, uh, and I say this as a person of weight, that Cuba does not have an obesity crisis, it's usually attributed to famine. But uh, I would attribute it to like you know people being taught that sports are good and like enjoying them from an early age. The whole point of, of their, of Ender and like their Cuban sports program is not to discourage or create situations in which people feel discouraged from playing sport. People have done interviews. A biographer, Milton Jamail did interview a native Cuban resident who was coaxed to reminisce about his own connections with a youthful ball playing Fidel. Um, 
newspaper peddler Sieg from Medina informed Jamil that while attending high school in Santiago de Cuba in 1943, he had played ball against Fidel's school uh, and indicated Fidel also was not a pitcher. He was a first baseman. That may or may not have uh, that story may or may not be true. Uh, it is one of the most like believable stories <laughs> that's been told. When he was asked about his baseball stuff by Barbara Walters, he thought Fidel thought it was hilarious. He would laugh at it whenever anyone asked him about his like baseball playing past. Whereas like Fidel actually retroactively changed his own history to say he was always a socialist, right? Like he would deny the baseball stuff, but like he would reinvent his own his own history and his own myth sort of to fit whatever best what he thought was best for the future of Cuba. And, uh, you know, there's still, there are photos of him at exhibition games or like throwing out first pitches and stuff like that. Like everyone knew he was a fan. In later life, when Fidel was asked earnestly about what athletics he does love, he mostly talked about scuba diving and swimming. It appears <laughs> That's that... That's a troll. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was a big scuba diver. One of the ways that uh, oh. the CIA wanted to kill Fidel was to put an exploding conch at the bottom of his favorite swimming hole. Which, again, batshit absolutely fucking crazy. Uh, and, like, his, it was pretty clear from that interview that baseball took a much bigger role in his life after he came to power than before. And it's, like, part of something much bigger. Um, this is a part I don't get from my research, where people, like the author Bjarkman describes several fictional autobiographies of the romanticized Cuban leader. Those two words appear to be in conflict with each other. <laughs> But they appear to be uh, biographies that are uh, written out of thin air um, or that claim to have Fidel's voice based on other reports uh, or information that is out there. Um, trash. Absolutely trash. Yeah, like uh, John Critch wrote a, bi- a, fictional, a fictional autobiography of Fidel where he uh, he said Fidel had three boyhood wishes to head a conquering army to be a lawyer delivering an eloquent summation and to pitch for the bronx bombers in the seventh game of the world series uh, mm. there's absolutely no proof that any of these fantasies ever existed <laughs> uh one of the biggest points from which uh all this propaganda about castro stems is um popular crime novelist randy wayne wright who wrote the uh, new york times best-selling doc marion ford adventure crime novels doc ford uh, was a hardened former navy seal and current cia operative turned turned fishing boat pilot you know working for the for the cia off the coast of florida white uh, has actually traveled to cuba a lot he claims to be uh, an expert on the subject of the island's politics. He was very involved in fostering the Masonic movement in Havana. And his website's biography claims he helped reintroduce baseball to Castro's Cuba, uh, which is a just flat-out lie, given that the Inter Sports Ministry has organized youth competitions from... I think it was the first thing they did when they were created. Randy Wayne White is just an asshole who loves making shit up. However, his portraits of the Cuban leader, which are a favorite part of his books, are pretty distasteful, but his books are extremely popular amongst who else? The Cuban exile community mm-hmm. in Florida, and I believe his books sell the most in Florida, which is also his home state. In one novel called North of Havana, you know, his hero, uh, Ford, contacts his old acquaintance, General Juan Riviera, 
prime minister of the Banana Republic of Masagua, a thinly disguised Hugo Chavez figure who fancies himself a talented baseball pitcher and and abandoned his imagined big league future for the attractions of political power. You know, the central military strongman Rivera had invaluable connections in Havana to bail out Ford if things turned sour. And then Ford, in this book, the hero Ford, says that years earlier had visited the island, posing as a bullpen pitcher for the American team in Havana Amateur (laughs) World Series, but actually working as a CIA covert operative, and found himself pitching against Fidel Castro in an exhibition match inaugurating the tournament. He acknowledges that the dictator, once drafted by the New York Giants, was hardly a prospect and that the entire tale of his pitching prowess was only a lie. Of course, in all these books, uh, Ford almost always assassinates the Cuban leader, but always misses at the last second or like something happens because you need to keep that villain going, right? Obviously. Um, And they always share pointed verbal barbs like you were a shitty catcher fidel screams at ford and ford screamed back well you're a shitty president and a shittier excuse for a pitcher and then fires off a warning shot across fidel's ear i can't believe people i'm in the wrong business actually people like buy this shit on mass like this dude's easily a millionaire yeah, you got to just start writing contradictory, just like totally hypocritical conspiratorial writing. It's funny, too, because one of the other theories is that Fidel Castro was like a secret CIA agent that was involved in the killing of John F. Kennedy. So these fucking uh, conspiracies are just like mounting, like just fucking they, they're just like meeting and they're exploding on each other because they are completely contradictory and make no sense. It, it lends itself to a very specific kind of propaganda. Right. That to me is like a huge part of it is like these books and these stories, like you mentioned, it's both uh, Fidel actually sucked at the sport he loved uh, that Mm -hmm. he never really loved. And also the if Hitler had just been a painter dialogue. Yeah, it's a sort of idea that like these people always had a fatal flaw in them that would uh, not allow them to be a part of just normal society, a.k.a. like not that I'm saying that. Hitler was just simply not Western thinking. I'm a fucking Jew and like a Holocaust uh, survivor um, grandson. But that, yeah, that is the separation between their uh, type of thinking and in comparison to like normal, quote unquote, Western thinking is that they were just they just failed at something, couldn't handle it. And that made them crazy. And the thing with Castro that makes it so much worse is that, you know, he has an evident he's had such a long uh, road as a revolutionary up until like the Cuban Missile Crisis, even that that completely shatters the story to begin with. It's totally that thing where it's just like you're not able to conceive of like global conditions or you're not willing to confront global conditions that create people you don't like that create actual bastards like Hitler. Right. Or create people that are like counter uh, hegemonic to you know, U.S. narratives of of capitalism and imperialism, right, such as Castro, the two are not actually comparable, Um, although in the eyes of the U.S. uh, of the U.S. propaganda apparatus, they obviously are, right? But it's like you're unable to conceive of of the conditions that would create either of these people, right? Hitler following the the fall of Germany in the First World War and Castro, you know, following a U.S.-backed Fuelgencio Batista government that, like, owned literal slaves, and murdered, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of, of Cubans through a, a massive program of violence and and famine. So it's like, no, we have to <laughs> we have to attribute it to fuck man, he didn't get signed by the Giants. <laughs> Is it the New York Giants? I wanna make sure I'm not it's not the 
I'm thinking of the New York football team. I'm so fucking sorry. Oh, uh, you're thinking of the Yankees. Uh, actually, that was constantly hitting my brain, and there was something in my brain that was constantly asking me, aren't we talking about baseball? But I just kind of went along with Giants. it. I am yeah. a fucking idiot. I'm so sorry. Anyone who I just also threw you under the bus. No, I it's okay. It's okay. Anyone who's still listening, like I am a idiot. My brain is on fire. Uh, Kyle, you better put it in the show notes that Abdul uh, confused the San Francisco Giants and the New York Giants so that someone listening to this does not think I'm a fucking moron. You can keep this part in there, too. In his last years in power, Fidel was a regular presence on the ballpark scene. He was uh, center stage at a Baltimore Orioles exhibition visit to Havana in 1999. Um, he was almost always throwing out the first pitch at major games and stuff like that. There's photos of him with Baltimore manager, Ray Miller and MLB commissioner, Bud Selig, by the way, which was a, uh, a key point of controversy for, um, people who were definitely poor and made poorer by Chavez and are living in the, uh, in, uh, you know, million dollar homes in, in Southern Florida. You know, they were pissed. They were legitimately pissed. Um, and there was a it was a big thing for them. You see this a lot, by the way, with former players who, who defect or whatever. A lot mm-hmm. of them still actually do quite respect Fidel, right? They left for more material reasons rather than loving their country or their countrymen, which is like a, a huge thing. And like the diaspora of, of Cuban baseball players is really fascinating. We'll get into that into the other episode. You could actually just do a whole episode on human trafficking and Cuban baseball because the two are yeah. incredibly interlinked. Perhaps the final word on sports would be given to the Comandante himself, according to Bjarkman. In a volume published by Inder on several occasions to like promote sports on the island called Fidel on Sports, the editors uh, collected basically all these like reminiscings of Fidel talking about sports and stuff like that, but... Largely, baseball was was kept out of it. Uh, out of twenty eight photos mm. placed at Book's End, only four feature baseball. Mm. Uh, whereas most cover other sports such as boxing, swimming. Basically, didn't want it to be just a baseball nation. So you know there is that stuff where it's like uh, whether or not he he cared that deeply about it is still up for debate. But definitely, a diversification of sports was something that happened under Inder much too the country's uh, benefit, I would say, on the international sporting stage. However, there is other evidence that Fidel carefully micromanaged Cuban baseball as carefully as he micromanaged Cuba, including starting lineups and pitching selections, and that he <laughs> had veto power in selecting rosters. This part might actually be true, uh, and that he and not the baseball commission hired and fired national team managers <laughs> He did have a crucial hand in most policy decisions in Cuba. That is a fact. And uh, the author, Peter C. Bjarkman, at the 1999 Winnipeg tournament would uh, experience firsthand (laughs) Cuba uh, Fidel Castro's involvement in Cuban baseball. Fidel was not at this tournament, but he, uh, Peter Bjarkman, was standing in front of the Cuban dugout during pregame warm-ups during the gold medal finale with Team USA, talking to players he already knew from his uh, island visits and his, uh, you know, nominal reporting on Cuban baseball and he was talking to Carlitos Rodriguez the top Inder uh, boss uh, who was then interrupted by a cell phone and when he answered he looked left and looked right and then said si comandante 
and then excused himself and retreated to the dugout where <laughs> uh, he carried on a big conversation with Fidel, apparently, oh, yeah. um, literally minutes before this game was scheduled to start. My man was literally sitting, uh, you know, in his uh, in his home in Cuba, watching this game and being like, I don't like this lineup. Like, let me let me call this motherfucker and tell him what's up. Right. Um let me call Carlitos Rodriguez and tell him how to actually set up the lineups. By the way, the Cubans did, they, did, did win. Did they win that game? Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, so the, so there you go. That's all we need to hear. Castro is fucking money was proto moneyball. Yeah, you know Castro ball. Uh, you know we'll call it that. Um, that's pretty much all I have. But I I see like in this madness of like Cuban propaganda, you have something else. Well, I mean, I, I guess this is a good way to talk about just like Castro's influence on people because, you know, other than baseball, Castro did have other sports friends, right? Like Muhammad Ali was a good friend of his. Muhammad Ali, you know, is obviously was a vocal activist against racial inequality in the United States and, you know, considered Fidel basically a comrade. And there's a lot of photos of them. Uh, Maradona, uh, rest in peace. Maybe we should do an episode on him in the future, by the way. Diego Maradona also uh, held Fidel Castro. He, he has a tattoo of Castro on his leg. He likes him so much and they've hung out a whole bunch. That makes sense. But the one I was just like in my research, I was looking up that really fucking like threw a curveball at me uh pun not intended there was that jesse ventura former wwe wrestler and uh predator uh actor was like also good friends with uh with fidel castro and like i found this out actually not first i first i found this article this scathing article from another uh cuban uh from a disaffected cuban uh, writer, um, who I won't name, maybe because we're going to sh- shit on them, but um, basically shitting on Ventura, who he found a very he 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 held him at high esteem when he was uh, the governor uh, uh, of uh, I believe it was Minnesota, but then like. The, uh, uh, Jesse Ventura was also just for context really interested in conspiracy theories and had written actually a lot of books about the JFK or at least one big book about the JFK assassination. And basically, this writer first finds out that Jesse Ventura is now friends with Castro, and then secondly is v- greatly disappointed with them because it's, it's according to this writer, writer, it's widely known that Castro was was possibly a CIA agent that was involved in the killing of uh, John F. Kennedy. And that pissed them off uh, more than anything that Jesse Ventura was uh, friends with him, which then led me to finding this clip, which I'll play for you quickly. Yeah, somebody randomly asks him this in like an in-depth interview. And I don't know, I, Jesse Ventura, whatever you think, he's kind of a libertarian. You can think what you want about him. I can see why they fucking uh, got along because Jesse Ventura is charismatic as hell. Before you say that clip, by the way, um, it is very funny because in 2016, Jesse Ventura was like, yo, this Trump guy is fucking up the political establishment. I love that. Right. This was also before I think he became like an anti-Trump guy pretty quick. But he's like, yeah, and he was a he was a governor before Trump yeah, was in office. Yeah, he was. yeah. But like a bunch of newspapers about um like I'm looking at, at this newspaper who are uh, it's called Babalu blog described as an Island on the net without a bearded dictator. So you can guess who runs it was like Che Guevara and Fidel Castro idolizer. Jesse Ventura has another idol, Donald Trump, right? Like people were comparing Ventura Castro like, to Trump. Yeah. Like his relationship to Castro as like his, like as a way to disenfranchise Trump, which mm. I think is insane. 
were you able to convince the Bush administration to let Minnesota trade with Cuba? I don't know. I had great people working for me. They came to me with results. Guess what? We get to go to Cuba and we get to set up trade relations in a country that has an embargo. For some reason, the embargo on medical and agricultural got temporarily lifted. What do you remember from your trip there? Everything. It was exciting. I, I today, I think I'm the only elected official who can say while elected met with Fidel Castro. Which is insane. Over the objections of the Bush administration. What did they say to you? I don't know. They didn't want me to. And my response was, well, am I supposed to just believe you guys? I want to go to Cuba and see the place. If I get to meet with Fidel Castro, I get to meet him face to face and draw my own opinion of the man. How many elected officials in America while elected can say they have that? What was he like? I found him, I'll tell you, he had the most unique handshake I've ever shook, and I've shook a lot. He wound <laughs> up and thrusts his hand down. I found that very unique. He looked me right in the eye, and he said, you're a man of great courage. And I looked him in the eye, and I called him Mr. President, because they have elections too, you know. He's just the only one on the ballot. We give you two. Oh, boy, is America great. We give you two, one more than Fidel. You know, you might as well give it, because our two are the same, so you might as well just get Fidel. You know, same thing. But he looked, he said, you're a man of great courage. And I looked him in the eye and said, Mr. President, how can you say that? You, do, you don't know me. And he said, because you defied your president to come here. He knew everything. And I looked at him and I said, well, you'll find that I defy most everything. And he laughed. <clears throat> now, to end the story, when we finished... He invited me to come back again and to bring my wife and children as his guest. And I'm contemplating it now, trying to do it because we can go now. Did you know the State Department banned my wife's passport? She wasn't allowed to go with me. What? <laughs> well, what do women do when men go on business trips? This, yeah. They shop. <laughs> they didn't want any money spent in Cuba. Like my wife is going to prop up the Cuban economy. <laughs> How, now, how ridiculous. Think about right. that. She wasn't allowed. We're a free country, right. and yet my government told my wife she could not accompany me on this trip. Right, which is remarkable considering you were the governor. allowed to go. Right. Yeah. Home in a brave land and a free, right? <laughs> Do you think you'd take Castro up on his offer? Yeah, I'd love to. In fact, we're trying to arrange to take my internet show to Havana right now. What was discussed? I'd love to meet with him without internet. Uh I'd love to meet with Fidel today, shake his hand and say, you did it. Relationship is back and you did it. You beat the United States of America. For 50 years, they tried to destroy you with terrorism and you beat them. (laughs) Because we did use terrorism on Cuba, you know. What did you ask him about the Kennedy assassination? His, His perception of it. What did he have to say? Couldn't shut him up for 20 minutes. He said it was an inside job. He said (laughs) Oswald couldn't make the shots. You know that as well as I do. He said, I had nothing to do with it. He said, do I look suicidal to you? 
He said, I love my country. He said, if I killed John Kennedy, the United States would have wiped Cuba off the earth. I'm not suicidal. (laughs) He didn't have anything to do with it. And he's correct. Oswald couldn't make the shots, and it was an inside job. (laughs) That's weirdly wrapped up a lot of the themes that we discussed throughout Castro's life. eh? He was a pragmatic leader. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I, I do respect... Fidel Castro as like, you know, simply like someone who could not ever be repeated in human history. You know what I mean? I mean that very sincerely. Like, not just the fact that he, you know, overthrew, overthrew, you know, the Batista government and ushered in like, you know, a society that was, that outlived, you know, the Soviet Union. You know what I mean? Like, was ultimately still like one of the most productive medical societies on the planet in terms of like what it gives its research, you know, the vaccines, Mm -hmm. um, its support for other developing nations and stuff like that. But also just like, you know, it is, is the most incredible piece of counter us hegemony on the planet. Right. And that also extends to its sports, but it's like, you know, we can talk about whether or not Cuba, the Cuban revolution is a success, but ultimately like it has persevered against all odds from an American institution that wants to destroy it completely, right? Because of what it represents. Uh, We'll be back at you next week. And uh, I don't know what episode I'm researching after that. I'm definitely doing um, uh, the other Cuban episode, but yeah, I have some other stuff to figure out. But yeah, and with that, we will leave you. Thank you so much. Take it easy, everyone. Have a great week. If you like this episode, if you like our engaging, astute, brilliant, beautiful political analysis, and you want to find out more or hear more from people who are almost but not as quite as good as we are, uh, you can you can check out Harbinger's entire cross-country lineup of podcasts. Just kidding. They're very smart and very beautiful and very hot. And we love them. Um, you can check out Harbinger's cross-country lineup of podcasts. Get access to exclusive shows and content at harbingermedianetwork.com. And you can check out all the podcasts, all the content, all the awesome work being done at The Mind Refinery online and uh, and all their other stuff at themindrefinery.com. <laughs>